It's a land we Westerners tend to romanticize as mythical and dreamy, high in the Himalayas. But Nepal has undergone profound changes in the last decade after tragically losing its royal family. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Jeff Greenwald tells us why he thinks of Nepal as his second home, where transcendent moments are still an everyday occurrence. There's these islands of magic, these refuges, these oases of spiritual splendor that put you somewhere completely different in another spiritual realm. And in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica is not only the most magnificent church in the world, it also represents a high point of Renaissance architecture. It completed this vision that they had in the Renaissance, which was to take the Basilica of Constantine and cap it with the Dome of the Pantheon. From Kathmandu to the Dome of St. Peter's in Vatican City, it's a heavenly journey in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. With all the attention over how the Roman Catholic Church selects its new pope, it's a good time to take a closer look at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, we look at the most awe-inspiring church in the world, both as a high point of Renaissance architecture and as the destination of a lifetime for millions of Catholic pilgrims. Another longtime spiritual destination is Nepal. But a lot has changed there since the hippie trail days and magic bus rides to Kathmandu back in the 1970s, back when I was a student backpacker. And while Nepal is no longer a kingdom, there's still plenty of enchantment. Travel writer Jeff Greenwald's published a thought-provoking memoir about the changing scene in Nepal, a country he calls his second home. He's here to update us on how life's been changing in the Himalayas and what Nepal still offers the inquisitive traveler. Prolific travel writers settle in different places for different reasons. Jeff Greenwald's written a lot of books, and he's well-known for his ethical traveler work at ethicaltraveler.org. And Jeff has spent a part of every year since 1979 in Nepal. Anybody who's visited Nepal knows about the magic of that place, and Jeff's latest book is called Snake Lake. Jeff Greenwald joins us now to talk about Kathmandu. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Rick. Snake Lake. Now, this is a memoir of your times in Nepal. What does Snake Lake mean? Well, in ancient prehistory, the Kathmandu Valley was an inland sea, and it was inhabited by a race of sacred snake gods called Nagas. The actual name of the Kathmandu Valley back in those geological times was Nagra, the Tank of the Serpents. And what does that have to do with Kathmandu today? Well, after the lake was drained by the god Manjushri, who cut a big gorge in the foothills and let the water drain out, all the snake gods and goddesses had to relocate. So they uh, found little aquifers and ponds that still existed in the Kathmandu Valley, and, and those places are now shrines called Nagpokari, or Snake Lakes. And I was living near one of those uh, lakes during the time that this book takes place, which is the spring of 1990. Just hearing you talk about that, it just I've only been to Nepal once, and there's this fragrant sort of mysticism, and you, you see these dreamy scenes, and you, you feel like you're just floating through a cloud, and uh, you just feel like... Did somebody slip some hashish into my last doll soup, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's just that dreamy kind of environment. And you've got this story you've said in Nepal, and I want to talk to you about that. But first of all, it's a very complicated uh, political context. We've got a situation where you've got a, a divine monarch, you've got an assassination, you've got a revolution, you've got people's movement, you've got democracy. Give us the context in the last generation of what has happened in Nepal politically. Okay, here's a real quick primer about the past 20 or so years. So Nepal, for about 240 years, up until about 1990, was a monarchy under this family called the Shahs, and they ruled as divine beings. The king of Nepal was thought to be the incarnation of Lord Vishnu, the great preserver of the Hindu trinity. So in 1990, the current king of Nepal was a guy named Birendra. His real name, his full name, Sri Panch Maharaja Birendra Bibikram Shadev. He was ruling the country, but not very effectively, and there were some huge problems going on with India at that time. And the people of Nepal were suffering a lot. Nothing was getting into the country. Uh, there was tremendous poverty. The king, meanwhile, was fabulously wealthy. Nepal, one of the poorest countries in the world. And looking around the world, seeing what was going on in places like Romania and the Berlin Wall coming down, the people of Nepal thought, hey, you know, we can do that. We can have a revolution, too. So I was there as a journalist in the spring of 1990 reporting on what seemed would be this coming revolution. And to jump ahead, the revolution, of course, as a matter of historic record, did happen in April of 1990. The king was kept in the palace as a constitutional monarch. 
Then, about five years later, in 1995, that horrible Maoist insurrection began, and a civil war started that lasted 10 years and cost about 12,000 Nepali lives. Right in the middle of that nightmare, in 2001, June 1st, 2001, the unthinkable happened, which is that the, the crown prince, his name was Dipendra, went on sort of a drug-crazed, um, I don't know what you'd call it, just he melted down, pulled out an automatic weapon, and massacred his entire family, including the king, his mother, the queen, his little brother, his little sister, his aunts, his uncles, everyone who was in the palace at this family function was wiped out. And, um, of course, that king who was killed was one of the main characters in my book. And during the time of this book, you know, no one really knew that was going to happen 10 years later. Anyhow, that was a terrible situation. The Nepali people still, I don't think, have recovered from that. Uh, five years after that, in 2005 and 2006, they threw out the next king, who was the brother of the king who was killed, and in 2006 turned the country into a republic with no king at all. What used to be the royal palace, where so many of the scenes of my book are set or imagined, is now a national museum. And Nepal is kind of stumbling towards self-determination and true democracy. Today, when you visit, as you have for the last 30 years, do you feel it's a good time in Nepal, or is there progress, or is it a broken people? I wouldn't go so far as to call the people broken. The people of Nepal have an astonishing spirit that's very resilient. They've seen massacres before. They've seen huge changes of governments and transitions, earthquakes and floods, all kinds of things. But I would say the country is broken. The republic is broken. They can't seem to get it together and really agree on a constitution or on a way to really govern by rule of law. There's still a tremendous amount of corruption, a tremendous amount of disenfranchisement among the, among the people. And when I was there, I felt there was these huge powers on either side of them, China and India. And in your book, I was reading that the greatest fear among Nepali people is the Indianization of their country. Well, that seems like not so bad now compared to the Sinoization of Nepal. I, back in, when the book is set in 1990, the Himalaya were still a pretty formidable barrier separating Nepal from China, or occupied Tibet, if you prefer. You know, since then, China's poured an enormous amount of money into Nepal, built loads of roads through the Himalaya and directly into Kathmandu. So though the influence from India is really huge and in some places overwhelming, it's an influence of democracy. I mean, India is, after all, the world's largest democracy. The influence from China is a little more nefarious, like what's going on there? The Chinese are really stepping in, trying to place limitations on the freedoms of the Tibetan community in Nepal. And that, that sets off real um, alarm bells and raises red flags for a lot of people watching what's going on in Nepal. And how is that complicated by the remnants of the British Raj and the um, you know, British Empire uh, influence? Well, I don't know if it's complicated by it. The India and England always had very close ties. England, of course, had colonized India. Nepal was never colonized, but the British did get their Gurkha regiments and so forth from Nepal and had a very kind of professional close relationship with them. That's still the major source of income in Nepal, even today, as I think it was in 1990, is pensions to Gurkha soldiers by the British. You know, I was just at the, uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I was at the uh, Olympic Stadium construction site in London for the 2012 Olympics, and the entire security force is Nepali Gurkhas. That was true in Haiti as well. You know, the, the Gurkha soldiers are being basically vilified for the whole cholera epidemic. Wow. But those Gurkhas are extremely uh, ever-present, you know, in yeah. peacekeeping around the world. And they've given uh, tourists the most exciting souvenir, I think, when you go to Nepal. Right? Is that, that wonderful? <laughs> do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> the Gurkha knife. The, the Gurkha knife with the cute little sharpeners. Yeah, actually, one of those is a circumcision blade. Is that what those little blades are? <laughs> describe, a Gurkha, yes. describe a Gurkha knife, because that is the, the coolest souvenir. <laughs> well, it's a big knife that's, that's curved. Oh, it almost looks like a shallow boomerang. It does look like a boomerang, Raz yeah. Razor sharp. Uh, they use it to uh, behead animals during their annual Desai ritual. And there's the two smaller knives. One of them, I believe, is used for circumcision. Maybe I was told that as a joke. Uh, the other one, I'm not quite sure, but um, I, maybe sharpening pencils. I, I really don't you know. You know, this is a very interesting pitfall for travel writers like you and me. You know, we can earnestly ask somebody, what's this for? And, and they can tell us something. And, <laughs> and I, I'm inclined to believe it if it sounds good, but maybe it's not it, for It is a nose hair trimmer. <laughs> it is a nose hair trimmer. I'm Rick Steves. <laughs> We're talking with Jeff Greenwald, who's spent a, a part of every year in Nepal for the last 30 years. And Jeff's latest book is all about 
his time in Nepal, and it's it's called Snake Lake. Jeff, when you when you talk about Nepal, we talk about this tumultuous history they've had, and of course they've you know their royalty's gone. They're supposed to be a democracy now, but you still have this holdover from people who believed that their king was a direct descendant of Lord Vishnu and their king was divinely ordained to rule these people without question. And you walk around the city today and they, the royal family's dead, but you've got the living virgin goddess. How does this mystical, medieval kind of approach to things hold over in the modern age? People are trying to be modern, but they've got, they've got tradition in their blood. Okay, things like the question of the living goddess, who's usually this prepubescent girl, as soon as she bleeds, she loses her position as the living goddess. She's more a symbol of, for the Kathmandu Valley, of the Newari ethnic group who settled, you know, the old Snake Lake, the old Kathmandu Valley. And even today, though she's still considered to be a protector goddess, there's a lot of controversy about it. And some people have gone as far as to say that taking this little girl, testing her, putting her in this, you know, uh, rarefied environment for a certain number of years is really a form of child abuse. And that's uh, an issue that the Nepalese are grappling with right now very, very strongly. And many traditions, the tradition of animal sacrifice, which was, uh, you know, is a huge part of various celebrations in Nepal through the year, is being questioned by people who believe it's very, very cruel and should be stopped. We're really seeing Nepal right now in a transitional phase. The time when the book is set, 1990, you know, things were not quite that evolved in terms of things like, you know, women's rights and animal rights as they are now. A lot has changed in those past 20 years. But one thing hasn't changed, and if I can sort of backtrack full circle to the beginning of your question, and that's the sort of nostalgia for the king. The king might not have really been an incarnation of Vishnu, the great preserver, but the king was, in many ways, the only sanctioned social, traditional glue that could hold this disparate country of nearly a hundred different ethnic groups together. From the Sherpas of the Himalaya to the Taru of the Terai deserts, you know, how can you find one person to speak for all these different ethnic groups? Now that the king is dead and the monarchy is over, they're going to have a really hard time keeping the country from splintering. It's such a beautiful and fragile country. I mean, it's poor when you think India is a wealthy country to the south. A lot of aid comes from India, right? Yes, tremendous amount of aid comes from everywhere, but most of the trade, overland trade, does come up from India. And the people are so charming. One of my favorite memories is children clasping their hands together and, and, and wishing the traveler namaste. What does namaste mean? It literally means I, I greet and respect the God that lives within you. I acknowledge the divine within you. Ah, namaste. 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 Pahle to ho gai, namaste, namaste. In just a bit, we celebrate Easter with a close-up look at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. But next, Jeff Greenwald tells us what he learned while studying under a Buddhist master in Nepal and why he returns there every year. Light the incense, it's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jeff Greenwald about Kathmandu, about Nepal, his personal memoir of his times there, and his book is called Snake Lake. Now, you tie in with your book, Snake Lake, a personal story also. Uh, Buddhism is a big part of your book and your brother's suicide. Can you talk about that for a minute? 
I will. Uh, while I was there working as a journalist and reporting on the upcoming revolution, um, I also began to study Buddhism. I'd written a book, Shopping for Buddhas, which is probably my best-known book. And though I, I wrote that book and it achieved a wide currency, I didn't know very much about Buddhism. So I received an invitation to study Buddhism with a young, very charismatic, and very knowledgeable lama named Choki Nima Rinpoche. And a good deal of the book is my ongoing education in Buddhism and what it meant to someone like me who was basically, you know, coming in with no prior knowledge almost of what Buddhism was. So I think for people interested in a primer on Buddhism, it's, it's very interesting on that level. All of us who travel, Rick, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, when we go to these exotic countries, we often feel like, you know, if something's going on in our, in our other world where we've come from, we feel really torn. We feel it's, it's just hard to immerse ourselves. We feel pulled back and forth. This was also going on with me. Though I was living in Nepal for many, many months at that point, I was getting these letters from my younger brother, Jordan, who was spiraling into a very deep depression. And looking at the letters, reading how, how dire they were, I could see there was only one place this would end. So though I was desperate to stay in Nepal and report on this revolution in Shangri-La, which could actually liberate the Nepali people and make my own career, frankly, I was also torn with the notion that I probably should go back to the United States and try to somehow help out my younger brother, who was in this real severe psychological mess. I remember how poignant it was when you wrote about that in your book, and you had to go home and, and be with your brother and miss the action in Nepal. Yes, and in fact, I missed both things. Uh, you know, I, I did get home, but um, I was too late. And uh, I not only missed the revolution in Nepal, but I, I really wasn't uh, wasn't able to be of terribly much service to my brother, although um, his fate was made a little bit easier for me to deal with. Or I was helped a lot by the Buddhist studies that I'd undertaken and so forth. So, Jeff, how did Buddhism help you cope with this personal tragedy? Well... It's very difficult to say how it happened because it's actually still in process, but I think that one of the main things is that Buddhism really helps give you a sense of clarity and stability. If someone we love dies, especially through suicide, we often tend to blame ourselves, wonder what we could have done differently, take on a lot of the the guilt and shock and really internalize that. I think through Buddhism I was able to realize this wasn't my fault, this was a choice my brother made. I wish him well in his future lives, whatever they may be. I'll do whatever I can to make his passage easier. But I am not responsible for his choices as much as I loved him and as sad as I am by, by what, he, what he's done. Now, when you set out to write this book, did you know where the book was going? Is this something you looked back on years of experience or did it unfold as you were taking your notes? That's such an interesting question. It's really strange how this book came together. It has a sort of a a complex structure. You know, those three themes we've been talking about, Rick, through this interview, the revolution in Nepal, the aspect of Buddhism, and the aspect of suicide, it wasn't until years after those things occurred, after those months in 1990, that I realized that all three of those themes shared in common the idea of liberation. There's the social liberation aspect of revolution, the personal liberation aspect of Buddhism, and a different kind of liberation that comes with suicide, a sort of ignorant way of liberating yourself from suffering. And I wanted to first tweeze these things apart and examine them, and then somehow knit them together into one narrative about liberation in its many forms. And how did your love life in Kathmandu play into all of that? Well, there was a a woman who I fell in love with when I was there, a female photojournalist. In the book, I call her Grace. The actual woman upon who she's based did not want to be written about directly. She's still very much alive and kicking. She had her own arc towards liberation, which I think is one of the more surprising and interesting subplots in the book. What happens to Grace, uh, who she actually turns out to be, and how that's resolved. Boy, this is what a mix. I mean, just wandering the streets of Nepal is a is a fascinating novel in itself. I remember when I was there, I would just walk in a different direction each day, and I wouldn't need a list of sights. You just come upon things. Take me on a walk through a neighborhood in Kathmandu. Isn't it true? And that was one of my favorite things to do there, especially at night when the traffic dies down, was just go for a walk and see the place transformed. And you just stumble across these little temples that are somehow hidden during the day, but at night, surrounded by butter lamps and with the smell of incense emanating from their their little openings. You peer inside, you see the god or goddess, you do your little prayer. 
Uh, you continue on, you see a, a bunch of cows nosing at vegetable scraps. You look up and see the crazy hodgepodge way the wires are strung up from the transformers. Then you'll hear the blare of a Radio Nepal commercial out of someone's window and a baby crying. Someone might pour a bucket of slop out of a window. You'll, you'll go past the closed-up gold and jewelry stores, and it's like a kaleidoscope that's constantly turning around you. Even today, with the Kathmandu Valley so congested with traffic and, and, you know, so dirty in its current chaotic state, there's these islands of magic, these refuges, these oases of spiritual splendor that take you just out of the mindset that you live in most of the time and put you somewhere completely different in another spiritual realm. I'd never get tired of it, and I'm never bored by it, and it always surprises me. Jeff Greenwald, that's, I got to say, that sounds trippy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just stating the facts, my friend. Just it sounds trippy. And when you, you know, this was sort of the freak street. Tell, tell me the story of the hippies in Kathmandu. I mean, it is an understandable place for hippies just to settle down. I mean, that was maybe back in the, in the old hippie days. But there's something, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely trippy about Kathmandu. What's the scene right now with pie and chai and ganja and hippies and so on? Well, it used to be you could take the magic bus from Europe and go through Afghanistan and Iran and end up in Kathmandu, right? And that, that was the big route on the magic bus. That route has since closed. You can't really do that anymore. Uh, hashish was made illegal by King Burendra in 1973 when he was coronated. But Kathmandu is still a magnet for people who are just looking to explore exotic music, exotic art. Buddhism certainly is a tremendous draw for people coming to the Kathmandu Valley with its huge Tibetan Buddhist presence. You can study Hinduism there and the Advaita traditions, jewelry making. You know, of the many years I've been going there, I have to say I don't see so many drugged out tourists stumbling around anymore. Most of the people who are settling there and living there are people who are doing photography, anthropology, filmmaking, Ayurvedic medicine. My wonderful friend Carol Dunham, who's uh, working with local herbs and, and uh, empowering local people with businesses, that kind of thing is what people are doing now. James Jambrioni, who runs the wonderful Indigo Art Gallery of contemporary Newari and Nepali art. People who are taking the place seriously and really giving as well as taking from the culture. That, that's more of the kind of explorer you see there now. Jeff Greenwald's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest book, Snake Lake, offers a personal narrative of the dramatic times he experienced in the 1990s, weaving together his life in Kathmandu with events back home in America. Jeff's sense of humor and his keen insights are why I think his books, like Shopping for Buddhas and The Size of the World, are bestsellers. You know, when you wrote in your book about Bhaktapur, a town, a little village, I guess, eight miles from Kathmandu, it was the scene of a riot mm -hmm. and part of the uh, unrest. When I was there, it was kind of like an advent calendar, and there was all these little windows you could open. It was just a medieval wonderland. Do you still get that feeling of medieval artisans and so on when you go to a place like Bhaktapur? Absolutely. And Bhaktapur has really, you know, I, I exploited, has negative connotations, but, but they have turned it to their advantage. You now have to pay a pretty hefty price just to get into Bhaktapur and look around. And the money is used to preserve and conserve the many gorgeous temples and carved window frames and cobbled streets of Bhaktapur, you know, so that you can sort of wander around it and, and feel like you're maybe in the 16th or 17th century. So tourists pay to get in, but local people are going about their, their basic, just going through another century? Well, they're living their, you know, their lives in the contemporary world. They may be spinning pots or carving wood by day, but they're, you know, they're on the internet by night. I remember going into the markets and actually buying cooking ware by the weight. When you asked a merchant how much a tea kettle would cost, he would weigh it. Mm -hmm. In the towns of Patan and Bhaktapur, there's all these shops selling old metal plates and cups and bowls, and they're sold generally by weight. It's astounding the beautiful things you can find. Tell me about those Nepali hats. The topis. <laughs> Do you wear one? Topis are... Uh, no, I don't think they look good on most Western people. <laughs> they you know, look except goofy on Western people. I thought it was... Except certain elderly, distinguished men look good in them. But basically, I think the, the best comparison is that a topi is like a tie in the West. It's a kind of hat, a brimless hat that the Nepali men wear in many different designs. And there are very informal ones. Then there are the ones you'd wear to meet the prime minister. There's the kind you'd wear at your daughter's wedding. So they serve Nepali protocol, much like the Western tie serves men here. If you were to describe it, it's kind of like a, an enlisted man's cap in the army or something, isn't it? But it's like a rainbow of colors. 
Yeah, it comes in an infinite variety of colors, uh, most of them made with local fabrics, some of them very attractive. And I, I, it's true, Rick, the urge to wear them has struck me. And I, I have put them on and then quickly taken them off because they look great on Nepalis, but not on me, not so much. If you want to make local girls giggle, you just wear one of those hats as a tourist in Nepal. That's true. And all these male tourists are wearing female Sherpa hats. So that's another thing altogether. Oh, my goodness. What about the mean monkeys on the monkey temple? They're still mean. You know, I mean, they'll pretty much leave you alone. But if you're walking up the steps with a stack of bananas, don't expect to be left alone. I mean, they're going to they're gonna come after you. And there's the occasional frenzy, which you want to avoid at all costs. They're attracted to your biscuits or your glasses or whatever. Anything shiny or edible, they will, they will come and try to steal. And they're, they're generally very peaceful. I don't know of any cases of rabies from them, although that's probably because I'm not paying attention. And they mostly conglomerate, as you know, around Swayambunath, which is the monkey temple, and Pashupati, which is the temple where they cremate the bodies along the Bagmati River. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're venturing through Nepal with Jeff Greenwald. And Jeff's latest book is Snake Lake. Jeff, you wrote with vivid uh, detail about leeches. And you wrote as if you had experience. Tell us about the <laughs> leeches. There's two kinds of people in the world. People who think leeches are absolutely hideous and repulsive and people who just treat them like a, an annoyance. Unfortunately, I belong to the former category. I abhor leeches, and yes, I have been out in the jungle with leeches. Describe it. They come at you like a little slinky, don't they? They're like little bits of macaroni that (laughs) that move and crane towards anything that's got blood in it, and then they slither onto you, they attach themselves to you, and they suck your blood. They're not harmful. They're not like mosquitoes or ticks. They don't spread disease. They're actually used in medicinal purposes, as you know. They still use leeches to bleed people to help with infections and so forth. But they're just, like, repulsive. But I must say, Rick, that through my Buddhist education, I've come to realize that they are also sentient beings. It's wrong to pour a bunch of salt in them and watch them wither and die. It's wrong to kill them. It's wrong to hurt them. Just flick them off. You know, I'm trying to do it. Take a few deep breaths. No, they're, they're horrible. What can, what can I say? <laughs> what can I... There's one big scene in the book where politically leeches figure in, where um, there's a comparison made between the leeches out in the forest of Nepal and the leeches in the royal palace. And it sort of leads to an epiphany in the part of a Nepali journalist. But, yeah, I don't like them very much. Now, you befriended a, a high lama in your experience. Of what value is that? Chokinima Rinpoche is still teaching now, 20 years after the, the time in which the book is set. Uh, he presents the ideas of Buddhism with such clarity and such humor and such wisdom that you just realize this is not—Buddhism is not a religion. It's really more of a social contract that you make with your fellow creatures in the world. And it, it's more of a science. Unlike Judeo-Christian re- religion, which, you know, tells you to love your neighbor and so forth, Buddhism doesn't say love your neighbor. Buddhism just says, look, everything that's alive in this world suffers the same way. We all age. We all get sick. We all die. We, none of us want to be hurt. We all want our offspring to thrive. Respect that in everything that lives. Don't create any more suffering for any living thing than you really absolutely have to. So it's really the teaching of compassion and um, just the wisdom to realize, as modern physics shows us, that though our senses show us this vivid three-dimensional world, really things are more or less formless. There's so much space between atoms that if we were their size, we could basically drive a truck between them. (laughs) So everything looks really solid and has a lot of integrity, and we all know we're here. But are we really? I mean, uh, we really don't know that we are. So just realize nothing lasts forever. Treat everybody with respect and basically be kind. What is the High Lama who is your friend's name? Choki Nima Rinpoche. And the word Rinpoche is an honorific meaning precious gem. And he taught you this notion of uh, Buddhism as a social contract between all living things. Those are my words, but essentially that's what the Buddha taught and what he is uh, conveying to us are are those teachings. How to meditate how to be a good person, how to be happy, how to relax, how just not to take things so seriously. That in itself is worth flying to Kathmandu for. It is, and many, many hundreds of people every year fly to Kathmandu just to attend the Saturday teachings of Chokinima Rinpoche, which are free, and they occur near this temple called Bodhanath, and uh, they're transformational. I've seen people go in and come out sometimes a day, sometimes weeks, sometimes years later, after years of study, really transformed by, by what they've heard and what they've learned. 
and uh, they become much better people, and I think the world's a better place for it. Are people in Nepal operating from a mindset of abundance or from a mindset of scarcity? That is a fascinating question. I, I am not in their mindset. From outside appearances, it often seems they're operating from a mindset of abundance because they're so generous with their time, with their food, with anything they might have. They're so giving and, and generous to visitors and to people within their own family or tribal community. In reality, within their communities, you know, there's complaints. There's dissatisfaction. Uh, wells don't work. They, they don't have clinics. They don't have schools. Uh, often the food is really limited, and they suffer from these things very, very badly. Maybe they complain a little less than, than we tend to. Maybe their anger is a little less of an issue because of their religious tradition. But they definitely suffer from privation while living as if generosity were the most important value. And I might just add here that those snake gods I talked about earlier that inhabited the Kathmandu Valley when it was a lake and now live in the little snake lakes, those snake gods, you can only become a snake god if you've lived a life of extraordinary human generosity. So the, the, the value of generosity is really pervasive in that culture. Jeff Greenwald, you are tying a lot of things into this book, Snake Lake. It's a complicated <laughs> tapestry of really, really challenging thinking. When people read this book, how do you want them to benefit? What is your agenda for putting this complicated book together? I'd like them to understand a little bit about what, what's meant by the word liberation. In a personal sense, what it means for them, what it would mean for them to feel like they were free or liberated, and also to just have an understanding of the Buddhist teachings and realize that liberation is not a state of affairs, as someone says in my book. It's an ongoing process through our lives and that there are many different paths to it, and some of them are certainly far, far more effective than others. You can learn more about Jeff Greenwald's travels through his websites, ethicaltraveler.org and jeffgreenwald.com. Jeff's latest book, Snake Lake. Jeff, thanks for taking us to Nepal. Thanks for the interview, Rick. It's been absolutely wonderful. Namaste. Namaste. I sit beside the dark beneath the mire cold gray dusty day the morning lake drinks up the sky Kathmandu I'll soon be seeing you and your strange bewildering time will hold me down from the heights of the Himalayas, next we turn to one of the most revered churches in the Christian world. St. Peter's Basilica has many stories to tell, and we'll explore how you can best appreciate a visit to the ultimate church in Christendom and a high point of Renaissance architecture. We're at 877-333-7425. One of the great joys as a tour guide for me is sharing St. Peter's with travelers, St. Peter's Basilica. One of the great joys personally is squinting up at that obelisk and thinking St. Peter saw this on the day he was martyred, the obelisk that stands in the square in front of the great basilica, and then stepping from the lobby into the greatest interior of any building in Europe with the sun rays streaming in as they have for centuries and seeing the next biggest churches in the world where they would be if they were put in that big basilica marked on the floor it's just an amazing experience. And then climbing the dome and standing before the giant mosaic on the inside of the dome that says in, in huge letters, 2S Petrus, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And then looking down at the teeming crowds way below, 50 yards below you on the basilica floor, this is all part of experiencing the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica. And then before I leave that greatest church in Christendom, I stand in the lobby looking out at the square through the door, and I mask the glare of the hot square with my hand so I can look above and I can see a mosaic of Jesus calming the water on the Sea of Galilee. Then I take my hand away, and I step into that glare, and it's the secular and modern world, and I carry on with my sightseeing. Visiting St. Peter's, whether you're a devout pilgrim or just a tourist, with a, a chance to uh, sample that magnificence of, of uh, all that history and architectural wonder, 
That's one of the great thrills of European travel, and we're going to talk about that right now. I'm joined by two of my favorite tour guides, Gene Openshaw, co-author of my Europe 101 History and Art for the Travelers book, and Francesca Caruso, who is born and raised in Rome and is here to help give us an insight into appreciating the Vatican. Francesca and Jean, thanks for joining us. Grazie, Rick. Thank you. Jean, when I was talking about experiencing the wonder of the Basilica of St. Peter as a tour guide, what's your experience taking groups in there? You mentioned it already. When people first walk in there, Mm -hmm. the nave, the grand hall, Mm -hmm. the sheer size of it, the scale, that's what I Mm -hmm. think blows people away right off. Um, It's hard kind of to comprehend, but the place is, is simply huge two football fields long. You walk along and there's statues of little babies that are the size of me. (laughs) It brings together the many elements of construction. You're seeing colorful marble on the floor. You're seeing statues. You're seeing uh, the light from heaven, columns of stone, pillars of light, mosaics, paintings, and it all comes together. The intent was to give people who, who had made this big pilgrimage from across Europe and walked in there to give them a glimpse of the heaven that awaited them if they remained true to the faith. Mm. That's what people still experience today is the sheer scale of this place. And, of course, tourists go there as tourists would, where's the statue of the Pieta by Michelangelo. But a lot of people, this is the culmination of their of their uh, their life. They can travel all the way from anywhere, and oftentimes from the developing world, they get there, they step through that door, and are just overcome with wonder. Even For me as a tour guide, one of my great treats is just I step in first and, and watch the faces of my tourists mm. as they step in and they see that incredible interior. Francesca, how would you recommend somebody really appreciate Basilica San Pedro? I think that stepping into St. Peter's, I think you understand the magic of travel. I really do. The difference between being in a place in person as opposed to reading about mm-hmm. it or seeing photographs. So the experience of the space, I read somewhere that architecture is art that we walk through. So measuring the space on yourself to really, really engage with that scale. As far as enjoying it, I think that a fundamental thing to do when you go to St. Peter's is to read about it first. St. Peter's is not like looking at, the, uh, at a painting of water lilies by Monet. The eye must be informed. So if you read before going in and you combine your instinctive personal reaction, you can't walk into a place like St. Peter's without bringing your culture, your beliefs, your ideas with you. So to allow the information, the personal reaction to blend, I think, is the key. You know, for years I went there as a Protestant with a bad attitude. And then I learned to park my Lutheran sword at the door and become a temporary Catholic while I'm in there, accept it on its terms. You know, you don't need to embrace everything uh, yourself, but you got to accept it on its terms. And in that regard, it really is a triumph. It is. And and also, why not just simply see it as a, as a shrine to man's accomplishments? And uh, yeah. now the, the fact that they were able to build that without machines, why not see it in now, that light as well? Now, Jean, the, the, the experience we have today basically comes from the Renaissance about 500 years ago. But it is an interesting opportunity to to get into the mindset of the great Renaissance architects and of the appreciation they had for antiquity. Yeah, the vision for this church that was built uh, mainly in the 1500s was to resurrect the ancient world. I mean, the the church got its start, of course, on the grave of St. Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, who was crucified right there on the spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, he was, you know, he was crucified because that's where a chariot race course was, and that was their halftime entertainment, was to crucify Christians. Mm -hmm. He died, he was buried there, and after Christianity became legal under Emperor Constantine, he built the original St. Peter's. So that was in the 4th century, early That was in the 4th century. And historians generally just call that old St. Peter's, Mm -hmm. and that lasted for a thousand years. But Hmm. by around the year 1500, it was crumbling and the roof was leaking, and they wanted to renovate it. But one pope, Julius II, had the great idea, let's just build a whole new one. So he, you know, basically dismantled the old one and built on the spot over the next hundred years what we see today. Many architects worked on it. Bramante started it, but many architects continued it, including one Michelangelo Buonarroti, who completed it by capping it with his magnificent 450-foot dome. When he did that, 
it completed this vision that they had in the Renaissance, which was to take the Basilica of Constantine and cap it with the dome of the Pantheon. And that is what St. Peter's is, is taking two superstructures from the ancient world and combining them into one megastructure. Now, that was sort of a, a humbleness, wasn't it? I mean, like we can't outdo the ancients, but we can, we can combine two of their elements. It was to resurrect the spirit of the ancients because they honored them so much. Now, that's the striking thing, is that this whole spirit of the Renaissance was humanist and even honored pre-Christian thinking and, and thinking that would have been heretical a, a couple of generations before, that they would respect this was quite a, a departure from the past for the Vatican, wasn't it? Yes. They thought that they were embracing all thought and all ideas, pagan and Christian, and so that they were truly creating a Catholic or all-encompassing Catholic, church. universal. There you go. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Basilica of St. Peter's. I'm talking with Gene Openshaw and Francesca Caruso. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jordan's on the line from Tampa in Florida. Jordan, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Longtime fan. Great, thanks. Um, well, essentially I'm wondering, as a younger person traveling... We'll be backpacking when we're there, and we're wondering, A, what type of dress would be appropriate for the average backpacker, as well as um, how to reserve tickets online if we're staying in hostels, like if to how the process works, basically. Very good questions, because uh, this is one place where you do have a modesty code. Francesca, what are the standards? Okay, so the dress code is rather rigid. You uh, Shoulders and knees have to be uh, covered, which doesn't mean you can wear shorts as long as they come over the knee. And then backpacks, make sure that you don't bring big backpacks with you. At the museum, they'll make you leave them, and sometimes it's a bit difficult to recuperate them. But at St. Peter's, it's hard. It's a little bit more difficult to get through the metal detector with those. As far as reserving your ticket for the Vatican Museum, Jordan, that's really easy. All you have to do is go on the official uh, website of the Vatican, that's vatican.va, and you can reserve your ticket 60 days before you go there. You just reserve them for the uh, for the time slot that you want. It's very simple. You go right to the entrance, you go right in, you don't have to worry about anything. From a tourist point of view, you've got the Vatican Museum, which is one of the greatest museums and the most exhausting and the most crowded museums in all of Europe. And as Francesca said, if you want to stand in line, you'll waste hours uh, you can go to the website and make a reservation, essentially an appointment, and go straight in. The basilica itself is mobbed in the middle of the day, generally, but I've always found if you go early or go late, the place is cool, it's quiet, it's relaxed. It's a much nicer experience. There's no reason to go in the middle of the day to the basilica. The, the third big line is going to the top of the dome. If you could go before uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, Jordan, that would be ideal. But Jordan, remember... Jordan, I've never gone to St. Peter's Basilica without a bunch of backpackers just pissed off and stuck outside, and they couldn't get in because they got T-shirts and shorts on, or, or just shorts. That was the mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. So long pants, uh, cover your shoulders, respectful dress. This is the most important church in Christendom, and it is one place where it really is enforced, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Have a wonderful Jordan. time. And Marianne's on the line in Southgate, Kentucky. Marianne, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for calling. Do you have a comment or a question for Francesca or Jean? Uh, yes, I was there in 2004, and I made reservations ahead of time to see the Vatican Necropolis. And the day that we were to go, I think the buses were running late, and there was a, just a downpour. And we got off the bus at um, Piazza Risorgimento, I believe it is, mm -hmm. and we ran through the rain to go to the office. Now, wait a second, Marianne, you're talking about the Vatican Necropolis. That would be yes. the, uh, the, uh, the Scavi, Scavi. tour, <laughs> the, the basement of the, of the basilica where you've got all the tombs. Yes, yes. And um, we got to the office, and we were literally dripping wet. I mean, dripping onto the floor. We were soaked to the bone, thinking that we were late and we were so wet they wouldn't let us in. And as we stood there in the office, this priest walked in, and um, he said, oh, yes, they can go. So <laughs> we were led down underneath St. Peter's and went through the necropolis, and it was amazing. Just the different little rooms and the um, drawings and paintings on the walls and the names, and you could see the symbols of the fish. So if you saw a fish, you knew they were a Christian. And it culminated in the area where it actually says in Latin, you know, Peter lies here. Wow. This graffiti goes back to the 4th or 5th century, I would imagine. Yeah, that, that Scavi tour. I should start by saying that uh, 
that's not something that you can just go to St. Peter's and walk into. You need to no. reserve well, well in, in advance. advance. Yes. Um, you can yes. do it by email, but I mean, to give you an idea of how this is, how traditional this is, they even actually, you can do it by fax. It's that traditional. <laughs> uh, but you do need to do that several months in advance. Yes, and, and I had done this several months in advance. I had my reservations, my dates, my time. And when, you know, things just kind of fell apart, I thought, oh, no, we're not going get, to uh, get down there. And there's little wonder why they make it so special and so tough to get in there is because you are seeing one of the true historic wonders, this yeah. place where St. Peter, at least supposedly, mm-hmm. was crucified and then buried and, and, in and a tomb. And then buried, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it lay there virtually untouched for 2,000 years until just about a few decades ago when archaeologists opened it up again, and sure enough, it's just what the tradition said. You yeah. had this tomb of a, of a man that had bones in it, and mm-hmm. it had graffiti on there saying things like, you know, Kilroy was here and I saw the tomb of Peter. <laughs> and they, but they yeah. analyzed it and it goes back yeah. to the, fir- the first... And it dates to first century A.D., which would have been when wow. Peter was supposedly crucified upside yeah. down and buried where they built St. Peter's. It was an amazing experience for me. I am a Catholic, and um, you were talking about first walking into St. Peter's. Mm. And when I first walked to that basilica, I mean, I cried. Mm. And, I and, and I attended Mass in St. Peter's and just cried. I'm like, wow, I am actually here. You know, Marianne, I've, I've been long a fan of having people, uh, anybody who can enjoy going to Mass, go to Mass. It's, I think it's every day of the week at 5 o'clock, and uh, mm-hmm. anybody, anybody's welcome. And last time I went to Mass, right there in front of the high altar, I looked back and there's a banister that's like a, uh, a barricade that keeps all the other people away, but mm-hmm. it's not designed. It just sort of draws a line. Anybody who wants to worship, you step right, right through. You go in and sit right. down like you're going to your church anywhere in the world, and yeah. uh, you have that experience, and it's, it's just anybody can have it, and it really makes that basilica come to life. Oh, it does. And it just made the visit to St. Peter's that much more special. Beautiful. Marianne, thanks for your call. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Bye now. Goodbye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been savoring the greatest church on earth, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome at the Vatican. Uh, We've been joined by Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaw, two guides that really know how to make it come to life. Francesca and Jean, thanks so much. Jean, if, if you could just... Sum it up. What are, what are two dimensions of St. Peter's that, that are really important to appreciate? Two dimensions. Um, well, I'll take two sites. How about that? The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, in many ways, the St. Peter's that we see is a monument uh, built by Michelangelo. And so those two sites would be his statue, the Pietà, that stands there, which was done in his youth and marks the start of his career— and then the dome that he capped the church with that marks the end of his career. I would see this wonderful statue that shows Mary cradling her dead son. Michelangelo did it when he was just in his, in his early 20s, and it stood there even in old St. Peter's. Um, so it predates the church we see today. It predates the church that we see today. It was displayed for Holy Year 1500, and tens of thousands of pilgrims walked by, and they were amazed at this artist that they've never heard of, Hmm. and they could see how he'd made this heavenly scene appear so realistic and so real. And then Michelangelo, as they then built uh, New St. Peter's, he took over as the architect. He completed Bramante's vision as the architect, and then began to design this huge dome on top of it. He used as his model the ancient Pantheon and the Dome of Florence, And he did not live to see it finished. It was such a monumental project. But you can imagine that when they finally put the lantern on the top there, it capped the Renaissance and capped his life. There's no better way, I think, than to to finish your your trip to St. Peter's than to make that long climb up the dome, up the, I don't know, 323 sweaty, claustrophobic (laughs) steps, it's uh, a dome within a dome, so you're kind of curving as it goes up. Exactly. You? You're walking in between the two shells of the dome, and if somebody stops <laughs> ahead of you, you start to you take a deep breath and go, okay, guys, let's just keep it moving. <laughs> but it, you're rewarded because finally you pop out at the top into this balcony, and you've got the view of all of Rome. And in that way, you realize that St. Peter's encompasses all of Rome and all of Roman history. Francesca, closing thoughts on this beautiful basilica. Well, I feel that in the company of these great men, we should add Gian Lorenzo Bernini, 
who is responsible for the, let's call it interior decorating of St. Peter's, and also responsible for the gigantic bronze uh, canopy that uh, sits above the uh, papal altar in Peter's tomb. Canopy that was made with bronze taken from the Pantheon, so another connection to the to the ancient world for certain. And, and again, that idea of the grandeur of ancient Rome, but also of the theater of Baroque Rome that all come together. And then one last very tiny thing that I would add is the experience of color and light in uh, St. Peter's. I love going there at different times of the day, but in the afternoon there are these shafts of sunlight, sunshine that just uh, cut across the space and mm. make it truly magical. And I would just like uh, to invite visitors to notice the fact that there is no stained glass in the St. Peter's Basilica. Even the uh, great window that looks colored is actually made of alabaster. And because there is so much color in the materials and the marble and all of the bronze and the gilt decorations, that if they had a stained glass there too, it would be pretty dreadful. We do trend to mm. find stained glass and cathedrals that are white or bare. Mm -hmm. So this transparent glass allows the pure sunshine to come in and just make it glow in their moments in there that I think can be magical. It is is theatrical and magical and you cannot describe it adequately unless you go there. And talking of Bernini and the theatrical sort of aspect of the Baroque, uh, you could say the Baroque movement was born out of the Vatican with Bernini's work there, I think. And you've got the Piazza San Pedro, which symbolically is like the outstretched hands of the church welcoming in the pilgrims. Was that not designed by Bernini also? Yes, it was. Uh, the Piazza San Pietro was designed in the shape of an absolutely perfect ellipse by Bernini over almost 300 columns that uh, close and yet open onto the rest of the world and embrace all visitors no matter what their religious background is. Francesca Caruso, Gino Pincha, thanks so much for giving us appreciation of what I would consider, and I think most people would agree, the greatest church in Christendom, Basilica San Pietro. Grazie, Eric. Pax Vobiscu. <laughs> <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for production help today. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, Chris Luzick, and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. And join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Grazie, Rick. Grazie. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.